In this photo, flag patches on Roof's jacket, one from apartheid-era South Africa, the other from the former Rhodesia when it was ruled by a Wearing white minority. patches on a jacket from, uh, from pre-apartheid South Africa and Rhodesia. Who seem to celebrate Rhodesia, uh, the Confederacy? And you mentioned those flags. And uh, anyone, Rhodesia. And I have lived in Rhodesia, uh, which eventually became Zimbabwe. Any signs of of the old Rhodesia in terms of flags and apartheid, of course, is a very offensive uh, to many people in Africa, certainly. Uh, but this is someone who was not shy about expressing, uh, from what we've seen online, his support, his belief in the Confederacy, uh, and also his uh, fascination, perhaps, with apartheid and Rhodesia, which is now Zimbabwe. Yo, we got to talk about this Rhodesia business, y'all. So Dylan Roof, the worst white supremacist terrorist we've seen in, in some years, celebrated Rhodesia, like hard. He rode hard for Rhodesia or the memory of Rhodesia. His hate and his, his actions, his, his terrorism were informed by and inspired by those former models of, of white rule. The old confederacy in Rhodesia. He referred to himself online as the last Rhodesian. That's how he saw himself and his actions. But Rhodesia in 1968 wasn't a former model of white rule. It was an active and ongoing site of white supremacist brutality. It wasn't a patch on a jacket. It was a place. It was a real place where white power and wealth were maintained by violence. So if, as that reporter in the intro said, after having lived in Zimbabwe, that it's offensive to celebrate Rhodesia in 2016. What was it to try to move there in 1968, when it was at the very height of its commitment to white supremacist rule? Ray always stressed how he barely even thought about race. Not any more than the next guy, at least. That was always part of his defense, like, why would I kill King? I, I don't even think about race that much. I don't get hung up on that stuff. And yet, by all appearances, he was caught on his way to the most racially charged place on earth in 1968. The one place after King and the freedom movement ended American apartheid. The last place where that sort of white supremacy ruled. That's where the single lone suspect in the King assassination was headed? The murder of Martin Luther King Jr. is a case that refuses to be closed. Did you fire the shots that killed Dr. Martin Luther King? No, not. I may not get there with you, but I want you to know tonight that we as a people will get to the Welcome back to the Crocs. Okay, so there's not a nation like Rhodesia anymore. Not, not really. So. Let's think about it this way, just in case there's anybody out there that's unclear as to how shit was going down in Rhodesia in the 60s. So, 
Let's imagine there's this white nation that just set up shop in the Middle East. Like, like maybe the U.S. just said Iraq was ours in 2003 and, and like, like all the way ours. Like we renamed it. We declared it the 51st state and then just started moving our shit in. Like all these regular Americans, like not just soldiers, but like just regular ass Americans just start moving in, moving their shit in. And so eventually you get to a point where you have about 5% of the population that are these new white Americans that act like they own the place. Even though the rest of the population is like 95% Arabs and the Arabs can't vote. Only the white Americans. And all the land is given out in, or most of the land is given out in these huge chunks to these, these newcomers. These white Americans. So, you know, whatever farming can be done is now on these huge farms owned by the Americans. Whatever oil is there is now going to be on white land in almost every case. You know, in other words, the resources belonged now overwhelmingly to the 5% or so of white folks that just showed up and jacked it. That'd get dicey. Well, white folks holding on to the last white European colony in Africa in the 60s, it was getting dicey. You had this wealthy white minority of 5% in the 60s controlling the land, the wealth, and the bodies of the folks who'd been there all along. That sort of operation is going to run into trouble. Trouble like an armed liberation movement. But like with this Middle East hypothetical, it's not hard to imagine it becoming this this flashpoint, right? Where you have, you know, the armed liberation struggle on one side, fighting for their land back, and being labeled terrorist, almost undoubtedly. And then these these young white dudes thinking that they're the righteous ones. They're the heroes. These Chads and, and Todds and Parkers, and, and they run off to go fight the good fight and fend off the Arabs. That's not hard for me to imagine. And that's exactly what was happening in Rhodesia in 1968. This was something you could do. As a racist in 1968, there were advertisements in American magazines for this. The Rhodesian government advertised pretty damn heavily for, for two things. For white people to just come, you know, increase their numbers, which they needed. And then for white fighters to come join that armed force that kept white rule in place. And this was explicit. They didn't doll this language up at all. They were fighting to maintain white rule, period, point blank. Here are some white Rhodesian soldiers, still really young, these guys, explaining the conflict back then. Rhodesia is now calling up every white man under 38 in the effort to hold the line against the black insurgents. Barry Borden was a volunteer at 16, on active service while still officially underage. Why is he fighting this war? Well, I feel as it's to do something for my country and keep it white, you know, fight the terrorism so we can have a decent country. I've lived here all my life. Well, this is what I'm fighting for. I'm not going to let somebody take it away from me. 
my folks, you know, came when this country was first thought of. Now I intend carrying it on. Make sure they stay at home. And specifically in 1968, white supremacists around the world rallied around Rhodesia. It was in 1968 that Rhodesia became the first nation, the very first nation, to suffer United Nations sanctions. The UN Declaration of Sanctions decried, quote, the inhuman executions carried out by the illegal regime, which have flagrantly affronted the conscience of mankind and have been universally condemned. And that made Rhodesia even more of a white supremacist mecca because it had become this international pariah, this rogue state that needed assistance and, and solidarity from good white people. In 1968, Rhodesia had just accomplished what was called a UDI from Britain, a unilateral declaration of independence. And that's a big deal. Okay. It was the first time since the 13 American colonies way back in the day, the OGs unilaterally declared independence in 1776. That had been the first, what they call a UDI and Rhodesia was the second. And Rhodesia's UDI made it its own sovereign nation, which enabled it to maintain its white supremacist state, free of, of, of London, you know, messing with it and trying to get it to moderate its racist rule. London was trying to get Rhodesia to work its way toward democracy. But with 5% of the white folks there, in control of things, they were like, mm, 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 no, no, thanks. But so all of that brought on those UN sanctions in 1968, which made it virtually impossible to travel to Rhodesia. Traveling to and especially immigrating to Rhodesia was, was effectively illegal all over the world in 1968. That's what the UN sanctions did, among other things. Getting to Rhodesia in 1968 was real work. And that's why it appears that, that James Earl Ray flew to London first. That was only the first step in finally getting to Rhodesia. So the UN had said that Rhodesia was, quote, universally condemned, as I read before. But, but that wasn't all the way true. It wasn't all the way universal. There were two nations that still maintained relations with Rhodesia. The first was apartheid South Africa, which made sense. I mean, they, they share a, a border and an ideology. But then the other is Portugal, who in 1968 was still under the control of this right-wing dictatorship. And, and they also maintained the last, the other last remaining African colony, Angola. So South Africa and Portugal, that was it out of all the countries on earth. And so where did Ray go almost immediately after getting to London? Portugal. It is not certain that Ray even left the airport after getting to London. He immediately transferred his return ticket to Canada for a continuing ticket to Portugal. The only thing that he said he did in London was that he called the Portuguese embassy about getting a visa to Angola. In 
So it gets really hard to imagine that Rhodesia was some some last-minute, last-dash effort by Ray to get someplace he'd be safe. It was the sort of thing that took planning. The Portuguese route potentially involved Ray in, enlisting in a mercenary army in Angola, which was at that time facing its own anti-colonial rebellion against Portugal, and then making his way eventually to Rhodesia overland, crossing Botswana and or Zambia. It was not easy to get to Rhodesia. But, but Ray's story, the way he tells it, doesn't suggest planning. Only this, this mad scramble of someone, you know, finding himself very suddenly and unexpectedly the subject of what would become the largest manhunt in American history. Right? So Ray's story would have him coming back from getting his tire looked at in Memphis, seeing the cops, and being from that moment forward on the run, in constant flight. He says that once he hears over the radio that they're looking for, you know, a white male and a white Mustang, and then they fairly quickly find one of his aliases and then another, you know, he bugs out. He gets to Canada, then decides that London is safer, and then Rhodesia. And that doesn't make sense to me. It seems off. So, you know, in Ray's telling, every move after coming back down Main Street in Memphis from that garage, every move is made on the fly. He sees the cops, turns around. Here's someone, you know, very much like himself, described on the radio as the suspect, keeps driving. Here's an alias. Another alias attached to the suspect goes to Canada, then to London, then to Rojiji. He's always running. Ray's story of being this innocent fall guy who suddenly understands that he's the subject of this, of this manhunt. That story means he ain't making no kind of plans. It's just a, it's just a scramble. Everything is on the fly. And you don't get to Rhodesia in 1968 on the fly. You got to really plan how to get there. But, okay, now, there is this way that I've seen proposed, this way to read Ray's desire to get to Rhodesia as, as an innocent fall guy on the run, calling a, a, like a fourth quarter Hail Mary and thinking he'd be safe from extradition in Rhodesia, right? Where he could profess his innocence from the safety of, of Rhodesian uh, asylum. If he's the suspect in the King assassination, he's he's very possibly a hero in Rhodesia, and they'd protect him. This theory has been proposed that, that Ray made a decision late in the game to at least get himself protected, get to Rhodesia, where he's safe, and make the case for his innocence there. You know, explained how he'd been framed and, and all that. Mm, but here, okay, a couple questions. First, how how can you travel, bro? Like, how oh, you suddenly have the documentation to travel? I thought that was the whole reason for doing all this shit for Raul. I thought that was the reason you were in Memphis to get the documentation to travel to London 
and from London to Portugal, and from Portugal back to London, and then to Africa. You never met back up with Raul. He never gave you what you what you say he promised, which was that documentation to, to get off the continent. But then you somehow still did it? You're jetting around like you're like you're Carmen goddamn San Diego? Why? Then why the whole business with Raul? That don't make no kind of sense. Second thing. Ray's story would be way more believable if Ray's interest in immigrating to Rhodesia didn't predate all of this by a long time. Ray, again, he describes every move after about 6.03 p.m. or so on April 4th as being on the fly. But no, Ray had been trying to figure out how to get to Rhodesia for a long time. It goes back to at least early 1967. His brother John told the FBI that that James quote, spoke highly of the Rhodesian government during prison visits. That is, in in Jeff City, the prison he was in before he escaped in April of 1967. We know that he saw an ad for Rhodesia in a magazine in October of 1967 that invited immigrants, uh, white immigrants, to Rhodesia. And Ray wrote to the address that was provided. Dude, why are you so interested in Rhodesia, my guy? That's real sus. Ray would eventually tell the assassination committee that he was interested in Rhodesia because it was an English-speaking country to move to. Okay. Oh, it's a language thing. Okay. Listen, no one who read the news back then was confused about what Rhodesia was. And Ray appears to have been, by all accounts, someone who read the news fairly avidly. He was he was really up on politics. The ad I just mentioned that he responded to was in U.S. News and World Report. It's hardly a magazine for the politically uninformed. From from early in his adulthood. All through, he was always known as a guy who 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 really did pay some real attention to world events and national politics. So, Rhodesia gets mentioned once, then again, and then I recognize that there's a pattern, and it's somewhere along in there that I remember Dylan Roof and his patches and and what he celebrated, and then I, I did my Googles. I knew some... But but not a ton. So I went back and did some more digging on Ray and Rhodesia. And so here's a timeline of of, of what we know. So he, he bigs up Rhodesia, or the Rhodesian government, the white supremacist government, to his brother when he's in prison. So before April 23rd, 1967. Later... In October 1967, he, he writes a letter inquiring about immigrating to Rhodesia. That's in response to that ad in, in U.S. News and World Report. 
And a little bit later in 1967, right at the end of 1967, Ray writes a letter to the American Southern African Council in Washington. It's like a PR lobbying type firm for, for Rhodesia in South Africa. And in the letter, Ray explains that he'd read an article in the LA Times about the group, and then he got the address of the council from the John Birch Society, which is significant and it's something we'll be probably getting into later. And then early 1968, still on it, Ray writes to Friends of Rhodesia, some kind of group where they're, they're friends of Rhodesia. And this is what appears to be a follow-up letter. The language in the letter suggests some, some, some prior correspondence. And he also asked to subscribe to something called Rhodesian Commentary, um, uh, like a pro-Rhodesian propaganda magazine. Man, that's a lot. That's a lot, bro. That's like, that's like at least a year of like active, sustained interest in Rhodesia. And that ends up becoming sort of like a hinge for me, like a, a pivot. That changes the way I see Ray. Pretty suddenly, actually. Once I, once I, once it clicks, once I really, at that moment when, when I get hip, and I finally sort of uncover the degree to which Ray was wild into Rhodesia. And that he wanted to immigrate there way before anything having to do with King. See, I'd become convinced pretty early on that Ray wasn't any more racist than the next white guy back then. And I think, no, I know that steered my research. I'd, I'd been duped by Ray. I thought he was just a regular dude. Yeah, he was, I mean, sure, he was racist. Everybody was racist back then. Everybody's racist now. Doesn't mean you're the assassin responsible for the death of Dr. King. What about the charge that you're a racist? Always have been. That's Dan Rather in 1977. I usually uh, uh, judge someone, you have on these, you know, the individual person, but uh, uh, but I think there is a, an instinctive tendency to associate people that you have something in common with, your background, things like that. I don't, I don't think that uh, means you plot to kill the other person or anything like that, but it's just... Uh, it's an inconsequential thing, what I can see. And see, I bought that. That's how Ray would talk when asked questions like that. He's sort of frank and, and honest-seeming. Just before that audio and, and a part that I didn't play, he, he starts by kind of saying, you know, like, listen, I'm not a saint. I'm not saying that I'm, that I'm perfect, you know, with respect to race. He doesn't try to act like, a, like some racial choir boy. I think that would have been a red flag to me. But when asked, he, he convincingly acts like, like someone who really just doesn't give it that much thought. And Hosea Williams, too, was convinced of this. 
We went to see Ray a few days after the killing. They let us in to talk to him. I wanted to see what kind of political philosophy. Ray had no political philosophy. He's just a two-bit redneck out in the street, a hustler. And see, I was with Jose on that. I believed Ray's little song and dance until the fascination with Rhodesia became too, too apparent, too glaring. And all of a sudden now I'm having to reconsider everything. I'd misjudged Ray. So what are the things that I'd overlooked? What had I maybe downplayed? What had I, if I'm being honest, what had I maybe semi-willfully disregarded in order to maintain a narrative of Ray's innocence? So then I returned to Memphis on April 4th and in something that I'd totally disregarded before now jumps out at me. Something I didn't even consider initially is now, is now screaming at me and it's just like flashing, blinking red. Ray says that on April 4th, Raul asked him to pick something else up for the meeting with the Mexican gun buyers. Binoculars. Ray buys them down the street from the flop house at a place called York Arms Company that afternoon. Binoculars. Wait, so you're in the binoculars running game now? That don't make no kind of sense. You don't. Gun running makes sense. Gun running is a thing because guns are legal and available in, in place A and not in place B. Individuals or, or, or groups might be barred from owning guns or owning high-powered guns or guns in larger quantities or ammo in large quantities. There are lots of reasons that arms trafficking exists. There's no such thing as binoculars trafficking. That makes about as much sense as, as, as pencil trafficking, bubblegum trafficking, frisbee trafficking. If it's legal everywhere, you don't need criminals to smuggle the shit. I cannot imagine a reason why Mexican gun buyers would also want some significant quantity of binoculars when you can get them any damn place. What? Oh, oh, is, oh, is there a government, uh, south of the Rio Grande that says, oh, you, you know, you can see, you can see far, but not, not too far in our country. And you have to smuggle binoculars in to see, uh, <laughs> you know, at, at significant distances. Nah, nah. That shit don't make no kind of sense. And why is the strap to the binoculars in your room, man? You were using the binoculars. And there's a chair pulled up to the window in Ray's room at the flop house. And you learn that you can keep an eye on the balcony of the Lorraine from that position. With binoculars, you can. You can see who's coming and going. It's not an ideal place to shoot from, but it works real well as a lookout. If there was an assassin in room 5B of Bessie Brewer's boarding house with a 30 6 rifle that he just bought, 
and with a scope that he'd just had mounted onto it. He might get in that room and, and realize that that seven power scope that he'd just had mounted was was good for distant shooting and, and plenty adequate for a target 200 or so feet away at the Lorraine. But he can't have a rifle barrel pointed out the window as his only means of watching the goings-on over there. People are coming in and out of the rooms all day. It's, it's, it's basically the temporary offices of a pretty big-time SELC event. King is only one of who knows how many people coming and going. So this assassin realizes he's going to have to watch for hours, maybe, to get his shot. And the only way of, of, of keeping an eye on things is through his scope, which, which means he'll be pointing a rifle out of the window for hours, which he realizes is, is a no-go. That's why an assassin might then go down the street to get binoculars. Then move a chair over to the window, back at the room. And use that as his perch to watch. Then when the target is eventually identified, that's when he goes to the bathroom where he has a straight shot. And so somewhere in there, I went from believing Ray to be innocent to, you know, low-key thinking he might have done it to all the way, high-key thinking so. Ray's credibility starts to starts to go with revelations of, of all his white supremacist ideology. And then that credibility erodes further when you when you realize the extent to which he tried to downplay all of this. All of that that real real extreme racism. And once Ray's credibility starts to go, then then Raul starts to go. Raul starts to like evaporate. He looks more and more like an invention. And, and once Raul starts dissolving, he goes quick, at least for me. And once you're not able to confidently conclude each description of Ray's actions and movements with the phrase, because of Raul, then it's, it's not... Ray bought a rifle in Alabama on the way to Memphis because of Raul. Now it's Ray bought a rifle in Alabama on the way to Memphis. Period. It goes from Ray chose a flop house next to the Lorraine because of Raul to Ray chose a flop house next to the Lorraine. Period. You go from Ray decided he needed binoculars on the afternoon of the 4th to go with his rifle because of Raul to Ray bought binoculars on the afternoon of the 4th. From Ray gave the rifle to Raul to show to the buyers to, well, Ray, Ray kept the rifle. And it just becomes unavoidable for me. Shit. I guess where he did it.